Take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The last time I preached was, a week, was two weeks ago, where Brother Mitchell was here last Sunday. And the last time I preached was the first time I got to preach with this cool clock that Brother Cooper put in the pulpit for me. And of course, uh, it really helped because I went 15 minutes longer than normal. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it runs slow. That's right. So I'm looking at it now, trying to familiarize myself <laughs> with how to read a clock. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter number 1. And uh, Romans 1. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans is, uh, have you have, this, if you read the Bible, say amen. If you wish you read it more, say amen. Yeah, so reading the Bible is great. And uh, there's some parts of the Bible that I really get a kick out of reading, other parts not quite as big a kick. Romans is great. Romans is a delicious portion of God's Word. And especially here in this section, verses 8 to 17. Of course, I'm going to say the exact same thing next week about verses 18 to 32. And section by section, I'm going to say every part is really great. Because when you're dealing with the text, when you're wrestling around in it, looking at the words and understanding what it means and what it says, every text, is, every text easily becomes your most favorite in the moment. In the moment. But this is particularly beautiful here because here in these opening words of the Apostle Paul's letter, he opens his heart to the Roman Christians. And we also, because we're reading it, get to see the heart of the Apostle Paul. Have you ever been around somebody and you have a superficial friendship? But then all at once, maybe over time, boom, they open their heart to you and you get to see them in a way you didn't see them before or you get to understand them in a deeper, more connected way. Here the Apostle Paul opens his heart to the Roman people and he says, this is my feeling for you. This is my feelings about you. This is the word of Paul to them. So as we look here at this letter, we're going to see the gospel heart of the Apostle Paul. And as we read Paul's writings, uh, we have to keep this in mind also. Sometimes in the Christian world that we live in, there is a distinction people make. They say, well, you know, what Jesus said is more important than what Paul says, because the red letters are what matter the most. And you've maybe heard that kind of, that kind of talk. But I want you to know something. If you're reading Genesis, Ezekiel, Romans, Revelation, Philemon or the Gospel of Matthew, all those words are written by human authors. That's true. We could say it like this. All those words are written by human penmen. But they're all the very words of God. Holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Every word of God is from God. It's God's actual word. So when you read Paul's writings here, although it's Paul's tone, Paul's vocabulary, it is the very breathed out word of God. So this is God's very word we're about to read. And with that in mind, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Now let's read God's word here, verses 8 to 17. Romans 1, 8 to 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported of, being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. 
I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. He wanted to come so that he might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks. If you're reading from the NAS, the NAS or the ESV, you might see the word barbarian. Greeks and barbarians. And if you want to make a note to yourself, if you write in your Bible, you may want to write the word barbarian because I think the word barbarian is actually better than non-Greeks. <laughs> when you read this here, Greeks and non-Greeks, the Greeks, their basic opinion was if you're not a Greek, you're a barbarian. Kind of the way uh, Michigan State fans feel about the other side. <laughs> or vice versa. I have no dog in that hunt, but uh, I just think like, like it's so funny. I will. Somebody said I will. <laughs> you know what? Oakland? I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I saw the rabbit trail sign go up a second ago. <laughs> if you're not a Greek, the, bar- the Greeks say if you're not a Greek, you're a barbarian. So that's why most translations say two Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. The gospel heart here of the Apostle Paul. The first thing Paul mentions here is he talks about the faith of the Roman people. And it is a, it is a spreading faith. The mention, in, the mention of Christians being present in any place is good news to the Apostle Paul. I have some friends who are laboring for the Lord in northern Thailand, north of Chiang Mai, near the, the China-Myanmar bur- <laughs> Myanmar border. They're laboring for the Lord up there. And all through those mountain hill tribes, the Lahu tribes, there are little Christian churches all over the place up there. And you know, I'm always constantly amazed and surprised and and made joyful when you hear how far Christianity has really spread. Virtually, there are very few places in the world that you can go where there is not Christianity. Christianity has spread like wisteria all across the world, filling it with beautiful flowers and beautiful fragrances of grace. The gospel has spread so far. Christianity is so broad. So anytime you hear of it being somewhere, it's cause for rejoicing because that means that some sinners have been born again, that some people who were going to hell are now on their way to heaven, and it's time for rejoicing when you hear about the gospel and Christians being in some place. The Apostle Paul, when he hears that there are Christians in Rome, in the very center of the Roman Empire, it makes him very happy to think about Christianity, because the Apostle Paul, he started with Christianity from the very beginning when it was very small, when it was just a little baby thing. And when it it spread and grew and became a mighty warrior taking over the world, when Paul hears that it has made its way from a little place in Judea all the way into the capital city of the Roman Empire, it thrilled him. It thrilled him because Paul was a missionary. Paul was burdened. Paul wanted to see the gospel spread. 
Paul had a missionary heart. He risked his whole life and and living to be a messenger of the gospel. And when he hears that it is spreading, it makes him so happy to hear this. So that's why he can say in verses 8 and 10 that he is thankful to God because your faith is being reported of all over the world. Now let's be careful with that phrase, all over the world. It doesn't mean that in the Amazon they heard there are Christians in Rome. It just means that they, the, the Roman Christians had filled the Roman Empire. They'd filled their world with the gospel. Now I'm going to take my coat off because well, I just want to. Let's talk about worlds for a second. Let's talk about our own particular worlds. Every one of you lives in a world that I don't live in. Some of you are really out there. You all live in a world that I don't live in. You know people I don't know. You're around people I'll never meet. But that's your world. And we as God's people, we should be filling our little worlds with the gospel. We should be making people in our little worlds, our little sections of society, we should be making the gospel known there with our friends, at our jobs, with our families, in our neighborhoods, in our hobbies. We should be filling our worlds with the gospel so that it will be everywhere. My friends, if you and I don't preach the gospel to sinners, if you and I don't carry the gospel to the world, who's going to do it? It's our job. It's our responsibility. Let's change the word. Because when I say it's your responsibility, we all kind of go, oh, man. Something else I got to do. Let's say it like this. It is our sacred privilege to carry the gospel. You see, our message to the world is one that says, you sinners, come and welcome. Come and be saved. It's a wonderful message. It's not, I don't see why anybody would be upset about that. It's a message of joy. It's a message of hope. It's a message of peace. It's a message of reconciliation. So Paul is happy to hear that these people, they're filling their world with the gospel. He is is glad to know this, and it causes him to be joyful and to be thankful. It causes him to pray and be happy for them. No doubt, the apostle Paul in his prayers for them, he prayed that they would be protected and that their love of God and their love for each other would grow more and more. We can look to the New Testament and we can see samples of Paul's prayers for the Gentile Christians. If you turn to Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, you'll read the Apostle Paul saying to the Philippians, he says, I am praying that your love would be more abounding, that your love would grow and blossom and prosper, that your love would be bigger Bigger and bigger, bigger love for God, bigger love for your fellow man. He prays that your love would be abounding in a great and mighty way. Then he prays that they would be discerning, that they would be, well, careful. That they would be thoughtful as they engage with ideas that come into them from the world in which they live in. That they would be discerning about what is true and what is false. And thanks be to God that we have his holy inspired word, amen, that we can compare everything to it to see what is true and what is false. Only God's word is inerrant and infallible inspired he prays that they would be discerning and then he prays that they would be filled with righteousness filled with righteousness filled with the knowledge of their own righteousness and then filled with righteousness themselves that that from their own life would pour out blessings not blessings would flow out holiness and goodness 
Here's some other prayers you could look at if you want to, if you want to write them down. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Paul, again, he prays for them. <laughs> it's funny to me, in First Thessalonians 3, he prays that they would abstain from fornication. This is kind of a common theme throughout the New Testament. The apostles are always telling Christians, always telling Gentile Christians to not be sleeping around. You say, well, I wouldn't know. If it was a big problem then, (laughs) it's a problem now. And so we don't have to, let's just say it like this. If you're here and you're a Christian, don't have sex with anybody you're not married to. Amen? And if you have been having sex with somebody you're not married to, stop it. And don't do it anymore. That's all you got to do is deal with those kind of things. Just knock it off, right? So the Apostle Paul tells them not to do it. Why? Because the temptation is there. The temptation is strong. All these things, we're just fleshly people. Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful passions, to flee from all those things. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 7, Paul says he wishes that they would not do evil. That they would not do evil. So Paul's praying for them. Because he cares for them. Because he knows that being a Christian has difficulties. And he prays that they would grow in the Lord. And he prays for them. He prays that he would also be able to come and be with them. Because Paul wants to spend time with them. Paul wants to come to them. But he's not able to do it. Have you ever been delayed from doing something you want to do? You ever woke up with a to-do list and thought, I'm really going to knock it out of the park today? And then just to find out that your whole day has been derailed by one thing or another. Every day I wake up and think, I'm going to do something fun. And then Valerie, she says, Terry? <laughs> I'm just teasing. That's not every day. <laughs> we were at dinner with the bosses the other night, and, and, and Brother Boss, he kind of, he said, he basically said in a very kind way, leave your wife alone, man. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> that's not the only, Mike Ekins told me the same thing too, so. You guys think I should leave Valerie alone? <laughs> well, I guess I should leave her alone. I only pick on her because I love her. So this letter that the Apostle Paul, he got delayed. He couldn't go to Rome. He couldn't go see him. But his delay actually worked out for our good because, because he couldn't go see them and talk to them in person. He sat down and wrote a letter. And because he sat down and wrote a letter, we get to read this letter and be helped and blessed by it. So my friends, even, you see, we, we, we think we know how it's all supposed to work out. But God is superintending these things. This was God's will for Paul to be delayed so Paul would write this letter so we could have it. This letter is a blessing to us, and this letter is a gift that Paul gives to them to make them strong. Look at that reading in verses 11 and 12. I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. What Paul says, I want to come there to you and see you in Rome. I want to make you strong, but not just make you strong, but I want to make myself strong because I want to share in our mutual faith. Paul tells them that he wants to help them and he wants to be helped by them. He wants to be encouraged by them. And this word encouraged here in our translation, it could be rendered strengthened or comfort or consoled. You see, Paul's mature faith could help them. But their youthful faith, their youthful, vigorous faith could also help him. 
Albert Barnes says here that Paul was seeking for the communion of the saints. He wanted to share in common with them. You see, we take being a, being a Christian, being with Christians for granted sometimes. But in these last two years, we've been faced with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle to keep us away from each other. It's, it's, when you really step back and look at the whole thing, it is, it is disturbing. I remember Easter Sunday, 2020. I actually said to the church family, don't come to church on Easter. What a historic event. And all across the world, Christian pastors like myself, we are all telling the people who went to our churches, the people we loved and served, we are telling all of them, don't come and worship the risen Christ on Easter. Think of that. What a, what a boom for me in that moment. And I never, I never felt that way before. I'm always trying to get people to come to church, right? Using every means necessary. <laughs> Guilt. <laughs> Gimmicks. <laughs> Goals. I mean, I tried to use everything to get them to come. But there I am saying, don't come to church. Don't come. It's a strange time we're living in. Where we're being pushed apart all the time. Pushed apart all the time. My friends, like the Apostle Paul and the Romans, we need to be together. We need to be encouraged by each other's faith. Our faith, our mutual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our mutual worship of the risen Christ. You know, it's kind of funny when the slides messed up. The first song they messed up on, everybody was singing kind of half-heartedly. But once we all laughed and cut up a little bit about it, the singing got a lot better. Everybody got a little louder, you kind of lightened up, your faces unfroze, <laughs> and we were just having a big time worshiping the Lord together, right? It's so much better together, together. So much better to be together, to worship the Lord together. We need it. We need it big time. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter, not Romans 10, but Hebrews chapter 10. And when I say Paul, I don't know if Paul wrote Romans. But, yeah, thank you. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to the reading. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 20-something. Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Now notice, notice the, the, plural, the plurality here. Let us draw near to God with a, sing, with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, and that day I think is the day of Christ. This is Paul is saying we need one another, challenging us in light of this. We have Christ, so let us draw forth. One old pastor friend I have uh, he calls uh, that section of Romans God's vegetable garden because of all the lettuce that's in there. Lettuce, lettuce, lettuce. It's a nice little four-point outline if you, if, you wonder, if you need something for it. Let's talk about for a second, what is gained exactly by assembling together? 
Well, in that reading there in Hebrews, it says we gain singleness of heart because we're all coming together for one purpose, for one cause. For one purpose, for one cause. I've never been to a high school football game until we moved to Sheboygan. I never went to one before. And Leslie, not Leslie, my other kid, what's her name? Lacey is in a marching band. And so we went there to hear Lacey. And it was so, it was so wild to sit on the home team side because the visiting team sits on the other side. Where there is, it looks, <laughs> the seats don't look as nice. It's almost like we don't care if they're there or not. <laughs> you out-of-towners over there. <laughs> I mean, the snack bar was on our side. They had to make a track all the way, trip all the way around, you know? And so here we are, we're sitting in the stand surrounded by all the Sheboygan people, all the Sheboygan fans. And everybody's cheering and and shouting for their team and the band is playing and and we're all rooting all together. And I knew nobody. I only knew one girl and she wasn't even on the football field. She's in the band. But I'm there and I'm cheering, you know, go, yeah, woo, doing my thing. Everybody pulling together. Everybody coming together in one place for one purpose, for the glory of our city and our school. And when we come together as God's people, we, have, we show our singleness of heart that we all are here for the Lord. And when you all gather together, in verse 22, it also gives us an idea here that there is assurance of salvation that comes from assembling with God's people. You say, how can I get assurance of salvation from being with God's people? Because when you come to church and you see everybody else is there believing the same thing you're believing, it kind of helps your faith. It helps your faith. Have you ever been to a rally or an event to support some cause and only be like, be like one of two people there? Like, am I on the right side? <laughs> am I on the right team here? Am I at the right place? When we come together as God's people, there is that we are reminded that we are all washed in the blood of Jesus. Now, you're not washing the blood of Jesus just because you're here. You're washing the blood of Jesus because you put your faith in Jesus. But coming here and being together, it assures our faith. It reminds us that we are the blood-washed throng, that we are the children of the Almighty God, that we've been saved, that we've passed from death into life. In verse 23, there's the mutual profession of the same gospel. That we're all professing the same faith. And in verse 24, there's the spurring on of each other. The authorized version says, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, cheering one another on. More than once in my Christian life, I've drugged myself to church and then walked out like I was walking on air because when I got there, I got something from the service. I got something from the preaching. I got something from the singing. I got something from somebody in the church who lifted me up and helped me to to live again, to be relieved of my burdens, to be exhorted and challenged to go forward for the glory of God. In verse 25, the writer of Hebrews says, we should long for this. We should long to be together and long together for the day of Christ. And if we are not assembling together, then we lose something. What is lost? Everything I just mentioned. These things cannot be replicated or duplicated in any other way. Only by being together. And Paul says to the Romans, he says, I long to be with you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Look at verse 12, Romans 1, 12. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by each other's trust in the risen Lord. These things are lost when you can't assemble. Now in verses 13 through 15, Paul talks about his visit 
It's been delayed. He just said, I long to see you. And of course, almost like he's anticipating the, the argument. Well, if you long to see me, how come you ain't showed up? That's, that's the idea here. So he has to tell him, this is why I haven't been. I've been detained from you because everywhere I go, I see people who need the gospel. Listen to the reading. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you in order that I might have a harvest among you as I have had among other Gentiles. But I am debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, a debtor. Everywhere Paul looks, he sees people who need to hear the gospel. He longs to come to Rome. He longs to come there and to preach the gospel. But he is delayed. He's delayed by the obligation he feels to all classes and all kinds of people. And there's a lesson here for us. Paul says that every level of society, from the most erudite to the lowest form of human life, no matter what their educational level is, high or low, wise or foolish, Paul says all these persons are worthy of the attention of the Apostle Paul. Now, don't miss the significance of this. The the Apostle Paul is saying, everybody is worthy of my attention. Who is saying that? This is is the greatest spiritual, this is the greatest Christian who ever lived, probably. This is a man who is not only spiritual, but he is supernaturally empowered to do things that you and I will never be able to do. Paul could pray over a sick person and see them healed in a moment. Paul can raise the dead. Paul gets bitten by a a poisonous snake on his hand. He just shakes it off into fire. And everybody around him, is is, is, it's like being down in Arkansas. He got bit by a copperhead, and he shakes it off into fire. And we're all standing around going, watch this. (laughs) He's about to swell. (laughs) And the people are amazed that he's not dying. Nothing can happen to him. He survives everything. The Bible says there in the book of Acts that he was stoned by rocks, bludgeoned, and they drug his, what they thought was a lifeless carcass, out of the city. They throw it on the ground, and they walk away because they think he's dead. Now, my friends, they they beat him to a pulp with rocks. I mean, he had to be a mess. He was broke up and battered, and he just stands up from being stoned, from being beaten nearly to death. And what strikes me about that, about that the most is, is he stands up and walks right back into the, into the city, right back towards the people who stoned him. What a trip. I mean, Paul is, here is, he is, he is a glorious person used by God in a special way. Not only is he spiritually significant, Paul is intellectually significant because he is probably the biggest brain to ever touch Christianity. He, he is, he's magnificent in his intellectual prowess and knowledge. And here he says, I am delayed in coming to the, the most wonderful city in the Roman Empire. I am kept from coming to the most beautiful city in the empire. I am kept back because I'm spending time with barbarians, being sure that they hear the gospel. Paul says everybody is worthy to hear the gospel. Everybody. Paul's not too good to talk to anybody. He's not too good to witness to anybody. The apostle, not the apostle, I was going to say the apostle Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) Spurgeon was an apostle, almost, but not quite. 
In Spurgeon's ministry, they, in Spurgeon's time, they had homeless people in London. London was a very poor city. Poverty was, was big time in London in the mid-1900s. And they had a lot of people. They call them street people, just like we call them today. But they called them the stinky people because they smelled so bad. They never got their clothes washed. They never took a bath. You know, and this, is, this is way before right guard and body spray and all the stuff that we take for granted. They didn't have any washing machines to wash their stuff. I mean, these are dirty people. And Spurgeon kind of upsets the, upsets the people in the community because he, he allows these people to come to this uptown church. These people are welcome. These people need to hear the gospel. He was burdened that they would hear the truth. My friends, let's be cautious. Let's be cautious that we never become snooty in our faith, that we never become arrogant or proud. We need to remember that we as God's people, we need to be constantly reaching out to the world with the gospel. And, and then I, I originally wrote here, and that we should be willing to reach down to anyone. But I thought that's, that's kind of a, that doesn't sound cool. I'm reaching down to you because you're beneath me. <laughs> we shouldn't reach down. We should climb down and grab them. Go down to where they are. Go down to where people are. Because all of us are sinners saved by grace. You see, in our, in our minds, we kind of had this pecking order. You know, we had this idea in our mind that, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner, but, you know, my sins are, I'm, we have different classes of sins. We forget that in the eyes of God, we're all on the same level. We're all rotten pieces of trash. We're all filthy and defiled. Turn to Titus. Listen to this. Titus chapter 1. One of the, this is Titus 1.12. One of the Cretes' own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's somebody giving their assessment of their people. The Cretans are always like this. Now look at verse 13. What does, what does Paul say about this? Verse 13. This saying is true. <laughs> the Cretans are exactly this way. And you and I, we are this way too. We are unlovely. We need to take the gospel everywhere, to every sect of our community, to every place in our community, to every home, every family, regardless of how they are, regardless of what their situation is or what their situation continues to be. They all need to hear the gospel. Let's avoid becoming snooty as Christians. Because if we don't reach out with the gospel, who is going to do it? Now in verses 16 and 17, Paul mentions a vital truth. There's something very important he wants them to know. He says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew it came, then to the Gentile it came. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written. The righteous will live by faith. Paul wants to preach the gospel that saves even in Rome. Even to people with big old brains and huge bank accounts, the Apostle Paul wants to preach the gospel to them. To them, Paul wants to preach the gospel. And he goes on in verse 16, and he says, I am not ashamed of it. 
I am not ashamed to preach it, and I will not be shamed by this message either. Because only this message possesses the power to save sinners. Only the gospel can save sinners. And my friends, the gospel is silly. The gospel is foolish. The gospel is ridiculous to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. There's only one gospel that's going to save people. There's only one good news that's going to save your soul. Only one. There is no other. There's not two roads to heaven. There's not seven roads to heaven. There's only one road to heaven. It's through a person, and that is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 1.29, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. There's only one gospel. There's only one truth that saves. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it, and I'm not going to let anybody shame me either with this old, yeah, well, you guys think you're the only ones going. That's true. We're the only ones going because we're the only ones who believe the right news, who believe the right message. There's only one road to heaven. It's through Jesus. (laughs) Have you guys heard that great old gospel song from the 70s? Uh, you're going to serve somebody. You heard that song? It won't be a, well, how's it go? It won't be old Buddha sitting on the throne. It won't be a Hare Krishna who sounds the, the trumpet, who calls us home. <laughs> what is it? The Imperials. It's, it's, such a, it's such a great song because it, it won't be Reverend Moon. <laughs> Remember Reverend Moon? <laughs> this song was thinking about all, all the cults of the 70s. It's Jesus is the only way to salvation. Only through Christ. And Paul comes to Rome. He's going to preach this message. Why is he saying this to the Roman people? Because the Roman people, they have been kind of soft on it, it seems like to me. They've been tempted to change the gospel, to reshape it, to make it acceptable to people. The gospel is foolishness to people who are perishing. People will laugh at you when you tell them the gospel. They'll mock you for telling them the gospel. They'll hate you because of the gospel. And it can be so awful sometimes, the treatment you receive because of the gospel, you'll be tempted to change the message. You'll be tempted to fit in. You'll be tempted to put down the barriers to keep you on the right path. But my friends, we cannot do that. We cannot do that. If If you took your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 1, and start at verse 18, and read through the end of chapter 2, you're going to see the Apostle Paul talking about this, where he says that to the unregenerate mind, to the non-Christian, unbelieving mind, the gospel sounds ridiculous. Now, to you and I who are Christians, it doesn't sound that ridiculous to us, because we have the mind of Christ. But But to people who don't have the mind of Christ, they're like, When the Apostle Paul went to Athens and preached the gospel, he communicated on such a high level, such a beautiful level, that the Athenians, the Greeks, they were like, this guy is smart. And then Paul said, and this Jesus died. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And when he said that he was trusting and serving a person who was risen from the dead, the Bible says they mocked. (laughs) They said, what's this guy smoking? 
this guy's lost his mind. This guy's nuts. Because the gospel to the unregenerate mind is ridiculous. I know that from personal experience because I used to sit in church just like you guys. My dad's a Baptist preacher. And he drug me to church every Sunday. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, prayer meeting night, visitation. I remember being 13 years old. Out. Is anybody here 13? Anybody 13? Jose's 13. When I was Jose's age, little Jose, <laughs> when I was Jose's age, my dad said, get ready to go to church. And I was like, yeah, okay. So we went to church. There's a whole bunch of people there. He said, I want you. And I've done this to my kids. <laughs> the exact same thing. We're going to go pass out tracks today in the neighborhood. Here I am. I'm 13 years old, just big enough to know two things. I didn't like my mom telling me what to do, and I didn't like going to church. <laughs> Those are two things I knew for sure. But there was my dad. He said, I want you to go out here. And I remember we were out knocking on doors, passing out tracks, me and my friend Stacy. Hello, we're from Valley Baptist Church, and we want, we're here passing out tracks. And we went to this one house. We knocked on the door. Nobody answered. My friend Stacy, he said, hey, there's a doorbell. Let's see if it works. So he hit the button. Ding dong. Nobody came to the door. So, so Stacy goes, ding dong, 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 ding dong. He rang that bell and rang that bell. And I said, let me ring it. And I started ringing the bell. And all of a sudden, the front door goes, boom. And this old guy goes, what are you doing? We're from Valley Baptist Church. I don't care where you're from. But I wasn't even a Christian. Well, I'm out there doing the stuff my dad was making me do. And I, I remember I didn't care about any of that stuff. I, didn't, I was disinterested in the whole thing. I didn't care if anybody came to church. Or, I was just disconnected. I heard my dad preach. My dad would just be laying it out. And I didn't care what he said. I used to sit on the front row. I had to sit on the front row because I got, a lot of the trouble, got in a lot of trouble because I sat on the back row. So I got moved to the front row. And I remember sitting on the front row, looking at my dad, you know, with my angelic expression. And I'd be thinking about hunting, fishing, cars, girls, food. I mean, anything, anything but what was happening there. Because I thought the whole thing was silly. And I know that's the situation for a lot of people who are drugged to church by their parents or by their husband or by their wife or by a friend. They're just, they're just, it's just noise. But my friends, I remember when I went to church and something changed. It wasn't just noise. It wasn't just static. It was something personal. Because the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to my true condition. And I went from not giving a rip to caring deeply about what was being said from the pulpit. I gave, I gave real Give real attention to God and to His Word. What was going on? What made the difference? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He says it's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God opens the mind. Opens the eyes. He says we have the mind of Christ. Something happens. Now, So I say this to all you parents who got kids. Keep on dragging your kids to church. Keep on dragging your friends to church. Drag everybody you can to church so they can hear. Because you never know. When I got saved, my dad had no idea I was going to become a Christian that day. He had no idea. 
No idea. But we cannot shape the gospel to suit the culture or the society we live in. Because it takes God to do it. You see, we could recraft the gospel so everybody likes it. And if that's what you do, what you actually do is you have lost the gospel. It's no longer a gospel. If you try to, if you try to water it down, so um, I'll just look at my clock. I see I'm, I'm not quite 15 minutes over. <laughs> if you water down the gospel enough, eventually you're not going to have the gospel at all. Not at all. Not at all. So what should we do? Well, we should believe the gospel. We should trust the gospel. We should proclaim the gospel. We should realize that the gospel of Christ is the only thing that will save sinners. And if it's the only thing that will save sinners, it should be very important to us. Look at verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Faith in Jesus is where you get your righteousness from nowhere else. Only through faith in Jesus. And you may be sitting here, you may say, well, I don't think that it could actually make a difference in my life. Listen to what Abraham Booth said in the 1800s. Be your sins like a debt of millions. Be they more in number than the stars in the firmament. Be they heavier than the sand of the sea. Yet full forgiveness superabounds. In Christ let this be, in Christ let this be your rest and this your joy, that grace reigns in the pardon of all sin. Through faith in Jesus. All your sins, no matter how big they are, are taken away. It's only through faith in Jesus. It's not found any other way. It's exclusive. Only in Christ. Put your faith in Christ and nothing else. To quote an old preacher from, who's, been long, who's been dead and gone now for a long time. He said, if you want to go to heaven, put your faith in Jesus. If you want to go to hell, put it anywhere else. Only Jesus saves. Let's pray together. Father, we entrust this message to your wonderful hands, we pray in Jesus' holy name.